Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Seth Center. Welcome to CSIS. Thanks for joining us on a, on a rainy day. Uh, we're delighted to have Jim Mann here to talk about his latest and greatest book, his uh, second book on the Bush administration, Characters. Um, all of you know <laughs> he's written a terrific book, Rise of the Vulcans. He's been pr prolific on China as well, about face and China fans are both terrific and insightful books on China as well. Uh, and now we have a book about two of the titans of American statecraft, Colin Powell and Dick Cheney. Uh, it's a beautifully written book, um, incisive character sketches. But I think the, the, the bigger um, message that comes out of this book is uh, the powerful ways in which uh, past events shape how statesmen approach events that come afterwards. The central message really that comes out of Jim's book is that interpretations of how the Cold War ended shaped how Colin Powell and Dick Cheney approached their second uh, go-round. And the differences in those interpretations produced different assumptions, which led to different policy preferences, which would have led to very different outcomes. Um, and one of the messages and, and missions that we have here at CSIS in trying to um, inculcate just a little bit of history in the think tank community is to try and build a, a sense of um, a common assumption about how and why um, decisions are made, how strategy develops in the past, so that at least we agree on how we got here, even if we can't agree on what we should do next. And so Jim's book is a terrific case study in that type of history. And so Jim will talk for 10 or 15 minutes about the key themes of his book, and we'll have a great conversation with you. Um, so Jim, congratulations. Thanks. Floor is yours. Thank you, Seth. Um, and thanks to CSIS for hosting this. In a, in a uh, way, the origins of this book started CSIS because in the year 2001, I left daily journalism with the hope of writing books, and I came here to CSIS for what was going to be a year to write a book subject um, undetermined, uh, and uh, that was September 11th, uh, happened just as I was coming here, and I decided to follow the Bush foreign policy team to see um, how they would handle it. And out of that came Rise of the Vulcans, about six members of um, the Bush team and their backgrounds. Uh, and, that, and that book was published in, in 03. I decided to do this uh, I guess I made the decision about three or four years ago that so much had happened, no one remembers how early Rise of the Vulcans came out. Um, uh, but so much has happened, obviously it came out only four years into the Bush administration, it's now safe to say what a complete and total disaster um, the, the war in Iraq was. Um, and. Uh, people have written their memoirs, a bunch of um, archival material has came out. Um, and really, when I looked back, um, I wanted to look not, not at all of the members of the, of the Bush team, but at two, because they represented really two philosophical approaches to the end of the Cold War. Um, when I say philosophical approaches, that's through their actions and their instincts. Colin Powell famously would say um, he was not a philosopher, he would brag, I don't do think tanks, I don't do academic events. That was part of his self-concept. 
So it's not as though he was espousing a philosophy every day, but he was out uh, there every day carrying forth really the vision of America's role in the world um, of the, the first Bush administration, of President George H.W. Bush and Brent Scowcroft, and that was the importance of alliances, the importances of stability, um, that America, after the Cold War, should, uh, with minor adjustments, preserve uh, where things were in 1991 or three or something. Um, Cheney uh, represented a different point of view. It was, okay, now we are the unchallenged power in the world. Um, we need to preserve that power, um, particularly military power. And, you know, we now have opportunities we couldn't, uh, we didn't have during the Cold War. Maybe we can re redo existing arrangements in the Middle East, such as, for example, um, by replacing the government in, in Iraq. So they really were, they were two different approaches. And these two guys, if you take the 20 years at the end of the Cold War, I would say 1988, because Gorbachev says in 87 that he's withdrawing troops from uh, many thousands of troops from Eastern Europe. If you take 88 to 2008, the end of the George W. Bush administration, and you look at the meetings of the National Security Council, not the staff, but the top-level cabinet-level uh, meetings, and you say, who was there? Well, even the two-term presidents, Clinton, W, were there for eight years. Powell was there for nine under four presidents. He served under Reagan. He, he served for a brief period under, under Clinton, too. Um, and Cheney was there for 12. Uh, and so, really, no one had the longevity, the seniority, um, or the, uh, in, at the time, the stature um, that these two guys did. And of course, it's a tragic story of what, ha what happened to all of them. Um, so the book really covers not just those 20 years, um, but it starts with Vietnam, because Vietnam is um, formative for both of these guys. Powell serves in two tours in Vietnam, and develops an intense um, dislike of what he calls slide rule bureaucrats, which is a phrase uh, really meant for Robert McNamara, but the people back in Washington and in the Pentagon who think they know how to run a war when um, it's completely out of touch with the situation on the ground. Um, and Cheney also, who didn't fight in Vietnam, spends much of his career reacting to, reacting to the reaction from Vietnam. Because Cheney is in the White House in briefly Nixon and then the Ford years, um, when Congress, in reaction to Vietnam, is passing a series of restrictions um, on the power of the presidency and the executive branch. Uh, the War Powers Act would be the one um, that you all know, but there were really a broad series of them. And Cheney's trying to deflect these intrusions uh, on uh, presidential power, and it becomes a driving force for him all the way through his career. Even when he's in Congress, he's, and therefore you would think he would be supporting congressional power, he's not. He's the spokesman for, um, for limiting the power of Congress in dealing with, with the president. And they form a partnership 
um, in the 80s. They actually meet coincidentally. Powell's a core, he's a brigade commander in Germany. Uh, Cheney comes on a congressional delegation. They meet. And then the following year, Powell comes back to Washington as deputy national security advisor and then national security advisor. Cheney's still on the Hill. And Cheney becomes Powell's go-to guy on the Hill. You know, when national security advisor has to deal with Congress, Cheney would go up uh, to get money for an intelligence program, for example. And who, was the, um, and who was the guy on the Hill he dealt with most often who could get things done for him? It was Cheney. Um, and, you know, this is an important. People now think that these guys were lifelong enemies. Um, they weren't. It was Cheney the next year, once he's Secretary of Defense under George H.W. Bush, it's Cheney who pushes to get Powell lifted over more senior officers to become chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And they're um, good buddies in that period. I looked at the, the archives show these little notes back and forth that say, actually, you know, to Dick, hope you get better. I, sorry you're sick. Your buddy, Col your buddy, Colin. So these guys are not exactly uh, the, the adversaries that they become. And I'm, you know, I will skip over the 90s. A lot happens in the 90s. Both, both these guys leave office in 92 and 93, and then they return in 2001. And think they're still on pretty good terms um, as they take office in 2001. Actually, during the transition, you guys probably remember the election of 2000. It's a fairly memorable election. Um, that Thanksgiving, Cheney has his fourth heart attack, and he's in the hospital. He can't be home for Thanksgiving. And who brings Thanksgiving dinner to the hospital, to Cheney's room for him and his family, but Powell's wife, Alma Powell? So the, you know this is this is not a formal official work relationship. It's it's a little bit more than that. And almost as soon as they take office in 2001, they're at odds. Um, Cheney once tried to suggest that everything started with September 11th. Not true. I mean, they, Powell and Cheney and the people around each of them um, were at odds over North Korea in the first weeks of the administration, over the Kyoto Protocols, one thing after another. Um, and so I, I try to track that in the book. And um, this leads up to um, the Iraq War. I went over the, um, the events of the Iraq War. I found two things that really did surprise me. One is there is no single meeting where they decide to go to war. Um, there is, uh, Powell devotes most of his efforts to what seemed like a successful initiative at the time, which was don't go to war before you go to the UN Security Council. Cheney didn't want to ask the UN for approval of anything. And Powell wins. It takes him three or four months at the UN to get some kind of UN resolution. Um, and, but meanwhile, Bush is sending troops to Iraq. So by the time they get around to looking again, there are you know, many, many tens of thousands of troops all around the region. And uh, you know, even Powell admits that by the time you get through all of these procedural things, it's February, March, 
um, it was too late to suddenly say, oh, we sent you know, 120,000 troops by mistake. Um, and so Powell, once again, he confines his efforts to saying, okay, if we were gonna go to war, we don't have enough troops. But there's no meeting where Powell opposes the war in a formal setting um, and uh, they have a general discussion, should we go to war or not, it doesn't exist. The other thing I found through interviews that interested me um, was naturally as an interviewer, I sat down with uh, different Cheney people and said, take me through this. So this happens, you know, there's September 11th and then there's the war in Afghanistan and it's early 2002. Um, and so what happened on Iraq? And I get to the second or third Iraq question and he stops me and he says, you know, he said, you're doing what everyone does. You're doing a one-track thing on Iraq. But the way it played out from week to week and meeting to meeting is it was a two-track battle. One was Iraq and the other is Israel and the Palestinians. Um, and the two tribes, I call them the two tribes because they basically hated each other, the Powell and Cheney tribes. Um, they were at odds over these two issues in all of these months leading up uh, to the summer of 2002. So um, it's a mistake to, to, to try and look at Iraq in isolation. There were larger visions, larger issues. Um, and then finally, uh, as a theme in the book, it's the common question, did, did Cheney change? Um, it's something you hear all the time. Everybody knows at a dinner party a cardiologist who said that, you know, I really know that it was changes in his heart that made him different in the, in the second Bush administration. Um, and I concluded that was bunk. Um, Cheney was very conservative from the very start. He was tended to be more conservative than the presidents he served. He was more conservative in the, in the Gerald Ford White House. He was more conservative under uh, Bush 41. He was sometimes misperceived, and the reason he was misperceived is because he had the deep voice and he talked like a CEO and he conveyed that everything was under control. He wasn't Newt Gingrich, but his voting record was almost identical to Gingrich's. He just behaved differently. And the Washington Post, you know, the columnists would go, uh, David Broder, sober columnist, thought of Cheney as a, you know, would describe him as, as a good moderate. Uh, and Cheney once told one of his, his aides, will you go tell the, call the Post and tell him I'm not a moderate, I'm a conservative, um, which is the way he wanted to be perceived in Wyoming, but also um, was his voting record. Um, so uh, Cheney, re and, and the last thing I'll leave you with, Cheney had this theory, this concept of himself. When he first ran for office in Wyoming, this was 1977, when he ran for Congress, and uh, a reporter asked him, how could you run to be a lowly congressman after you've been White House Chief of Staff? And he said, you know, when you're White House Chief of Staff, you're a hired gun. And he had this hired gun theory of himself in two administrations. He did what the boss wanted, ultimately, until 2001 when he'd risen to um, a level where A, he was on the ticket, he wasn't just a hired gun, and B, his informal function was to guide, steer uh, this president, new president who hadn't served in Washington before. So he didn't 
think of himself as a hired gun anymore. And so his own very, very hawkish views um, could be and were uh, put into effect. Um, and so we're now left with the consequences of um, what happened during those years. We're left with the war in Iraq. We're left um, also with um, a climate now where you have two different presidents who are uh, uh, obviously couldn't be more different from each other, Obama and, and Trump, who, however, are vaguely uh, in line with one, one another on the question of military uh, intervention uh, uh, of the type that Cheney once espoused. And let me leave it at that, because I want to hear your questions as well. Terrific, Jim, thank you. So what, what struck me is one observation you made in the book, which was that, uh, ironically, Powell was the conservative and Cheney was the proponent of change, which is a flip from how normally we think of the two. So how did you, how did you formulate that interesting? Well, it, it, Powell was, was a conservative in the original literal meaning of the word conservative, which is to keep things pretty much as they are. Okay, the Soviet Union has collapsed, but our alliances are there, and we should rely on our alliances the way we have before, and why would we want to um, upset existing arrangements in the Middle East? They've been basically okay in, in Powell's mind, not Cheney. Um, so in that sense, he, you know, yes, he was a conservative, and, uh, and uh, I mean, he wasn't a conservative in conventional political definitions at all. Um, but yes, and Cheney is a as an agent of transformation, or a, a proponent of transformation. Cheney, how does that, how does that come about? Um, uh, it comes about from his experience in uh, in the first Bush administration, where I think he he came away from that administration thinking that more should have and could have been done than was to take advantage of this new reality. That the United that the Soviet Union wasn't there, um, and that there was that, that the United States was this unchallenged um, military power, and that out of that came two things. One, and this is in a written, famous written report that I, I did have in the last book, um, this this notion vision of the United States as the permanent permanent unchallenged power in the world, and that it should do whatever it could to prevent the emergence of rivals, not just from day to day, uh, but again, the Soviet experience, we should develop such military power that the leader of another country would be crazy to try and challenge us, because it would cost so much. Um, so that's the, the Cheney vision. And then, uh, it's important to note that Cheney does not, at the time, favor going to Iraq, but eight years later, it's more, eight more years with Saddam Hussein. Um, it's now a, a different administration. He's a different rank. Um, uh, after, after that much more time, yes, uh, time enough though, the Cold, the Cold War is eight years past. Yeah, uh, so let's try to set up a different, uh, a different arrangement in the Middle East. And then you get a, a, a very important debate um, a larger debate. So what should happen between Israel and the Palestinians and what should happen to Saddam Hussein? And you get one school of thought 
um, that Powell was closely aligned with, that the answer to these problems in the Middle East is let's make peace between Israel and the Palestinians um, and then deal with Iraq. Because we, when we, um, first of all, after the first Gulf War, uh, Arab, uh, well, I'm sorry, that's the Cheney vision, but the Powell vision is we will have the, su the support of the Jordanians and the Egyptians and so on because we will have all worked out this Middle East peace settlement. The Cheney vision was after the end of the Gulf War, um, Yasser Arafat was really isolated and weakened in position. And if we move against Iraq first, before dealing with um, the larger Middle East problems, then the Palestinians will be in a worse position. So there's a question, there's a, a big question that's really just sequence, but it's much broader. Which, which problem should we attack first? Another issue that has interested me is the, is the narrative often articulated by the proponents of the Vice President that Secretary Powell uh, was not much of a strategist. This is some, a common theme you hear. It, it strikes me that in your characterization, you said uh, Secretary Powell was a pragmatist, not a strategist. And the way I would think about this is um, the alignment of ends, ways, and means makes for a good strategist. And elegant articulation of ends without regard for ways and means makes one an ideologue. So it strikes me that one could think of Powell actually as the superior strategist since he was the one concerned with ways and means, even if he wasn't interested in articulating through speeches, ends. H how did you treat that, that critique? Well, I would note that you, you added the word good strategist. <laughs> um, the, the, it's not true, actually, that the, the notion of Powell as not a good strategist comes from the Cheney people. Um, it really comes from Powell and his own people uh, as well. I mean, they, you know, they're very happy to tell you this is, you know, this is, uh, I mean, Powell himself said in an interview to me, I don't do think tanks, I don't do academic things, that's not my thing. You know, I'm the kind of guy you tell me, I, I grew up in the military, tell me how to take it. You know, you tell me you want to take a hill and I'll figure out how to do it, but the whole larger thing, um, it's, it's not something um, that I do from time to time. And his own people, um, Larry Wilkerson uh, said that, um, and a couple of other people around Powell also said, you know, this guy's not a strategist. He embodied the approach you're saying of um, what's the end, how do we get there? I mean, if that's, if, if you call that a strategist, then, then he was a terrific strategist. But, you know, Richard Haas, uh, who was his, one of his assistants, kept wanting him to give a speech or several speeches on his ideas, and Powell was a terrific speaker, but the, speech, the speeches were um, anecdotal, much better speeches, much easier to listen to than others, but he never wanted to give that State Department speech saying our policy is X, um, and here's how we got there. You devote quite a bit of time to the concept of tribes. Yeah. Uh, Maybe you could just lay out who, who was in whose tribe and how does the tribal dynamic play into the personal dynamic between the two of them? 
Um, so each of these guys, I, I describe these guys as uh, each the center of, of a different tribe. They're not equivalent tribes, as I'll get to in a second. I use the word tribe for two reasons. First, because the people around Cheney tended to hate, dislike, distrust Powell, and completely vice versa. And I borrowed it from uh, Francis Fukuyama once used the phrase bureaucratic tribalism to describe how the, the, what was going on in the Bush administration. I thought that fit. And in fact, a couple of the participants also said on either side, this is years later, I kind of, I, I regret the tribalism that, that emerged. So the Cheney tribe, uh, as I called it, is the people who were around Cheney um, in the first administration, working in the Pentagon, sometimes labeled as the neoconservatives, and that, you know, that fits for most of them. Cheney himself wasn't exactly a neoconservative because he didn't believe in spreading democracy. But it, it's that constellation of people, and they have personal ties to Cheney. But there are a lot of them all through not just the office of vice president, not just Rumsfeld's Pentagon, um, but several different agencies. There's a guy in the State Department who's a member of the Cheney tribe whose name was John Bolton. Um, Powell's tribe is different. Powell has spent his career in the military, moving regularly. He doesn't have so much of a extended personal network. Uh, actually, his close aide, Richard Armitage, um, who worked with him, had his own network, which is part of the Powell tribe. Um, but Powell really, the people behind Powell who had the same point of view as Powell are the career people in government, the career State Department officials, the Foreign Service officers, um, the military, the career military, uh, and people at CIA. Um, and in fact, if this sounds a little bit like I'm describing what the Trumpians call the deep state, um, there's something to that. It, it's really, the, they are the people who think um, that existing arrangements have worked well. Um, and what the heck are the Bush-Cheney people trying to do to you know, go to war in Iraq on assumption that we'll be greeted as liberators? So that's, you know, it's a different kind of tribe, but um, it, it, to the extent that members of one tribe would sit around talking about, you know, Dan Powell, all he cares about is courting the press. Dan Powell, he's always a centrist. He always, he always does uh, what the Washington Post and New York Times want. And the members of the um, Powell tribe are talking about how crazy Cheney and his people are. It, it really was tribal. And the last thing I'll ask, and then we'll open up for questions, how would you characterize each of their individual relationships with the president? And was this a situation in which um, the underlying process created the challenge, or their own relationships with the president produced the, the confusion and, and bad outcomes? Um, I think, on the one hand, uh, Cheney's relationship with the president is really unexplored territory. Um, they really didn't talk about it then. They've got their memoirs out. They really don't, really don't say much about it now. Um, it is very clear, uh, and, and it not as bosom buddy as you might think. 
Um, and Bush does keep his distance to the extent that increasingly there's a sense, hey, I am the president. Cheney um, offers his resignation a couple of times in 2004. I don't know how pro forma it was, but Bush decides he needs him. Uh, by 2006, as the war is going really badly, um, the issue of Rumsfeld comes up. Rumsfeld has offered to quit a couple times, uh, particularly after Abu Ghraib, uh, and Cheney has persuaded him not to quit, has persuaded Bush not to fire him. Uh, and after the 2006 congressional elections, when Bush takes a bath, it's worth stopping here for a sentence of anecdote. Uh, before the 2006 elections, uh, a guy named Mitch McConnell, who's the um, Republican leader, goes to Bush and says, I have to tell you this, you need to change policy on the war. This is an important anecdote because it tells you that McConnell knows how to do this uh, if he wanted to today. He goes to the White House privately, change policy. Bush says no, and then they take a bath, and, Rumsfeld, and, and Bush decides to fire Rumsfeld. And by Cheney's description, um, he calls in, uh, Bush calls him in and says, I'm going to um, fire Rumsfeld. And then he gets up and leaves, as in, I don't want to hear any. I don't want to hear anything back. I don't want to talk about this. This is going to happen. Uh, and in the last years of the administration, Cheney is actually isolated. Um, there's a, another anecdote that's more than Bush. It's a cabinet-level meeting, and <coughs> intelligence has just found that the North Koreans are starting to build a plant in Syria. And um, Cheney is in favor, the Israelis want the U.S. to bomb the plant. Uh, and there's one member of the, in the administration at the top levels who wants to do it, wants to do it, what the Israelis are asking, and that's Cheney. And they get to a National Security Council meeting, and they, um, everyone's against him. Bush asks for a show of hands, and Cheney's the only guy out of whatever, you know, the eight or ten people in the room. He's left completely isolated. Uh, and you probably, I don't know whether you remember or not, the, just the photo of Inauguration Day uh, in, at the beginning of 09 when Cheney is in a wheelchair. Um, he's been moving books to get ready to, to move and he's thrown out his back. But it was a symbol of just how, how weakened he had become at the end of the administration. Um, Powell's relationship to Bush is, is better laid out in part through Powell himself. I mean, he, he never felt that he had the relationship that he wanted with Bush. He tried to talk to him. Uh, Rice once said that she, she got frustrated because she, was, she would arrange meetings between uh, Powell and Bush where Powell could lay out as passionately as uh, maybe he had to her, really make the case, and she said he never quite seemed to do it. And you know, Rice's perception was he was being a good soldier. Um, but Powell, you know, he got some time, just plain time with the president, not enough, and he always felt that you know, when he left, when he, when he went out the door, the other door opened and Cheney walked in and won the argument. 
So let's uh, open it up. If anybody has a question, just wait for Emma has the microphone, just so we can document it for posterity. Thank you. Uh, Bill Veal, I'm a retired Foreign Service officer. I wanted to ask a question about the invasion of Iraq. Uh, in the early uh, period, the Turkish parliament voted to uh, basically close the northern invasion route, so we did, had to decide whether to go ahead at that point and uh, just use a, the one invasion route that we did. How did that play in the White House? Did you come across anything on that in terms of uh, hesitation or going ahead or, or what? Yeah, again, they, they did decide to go ahead. As far as the Powell-Cheney aspect of it, um, it's, it's interesting because the Cheneyites ended up, it became grounds for another grievance against Powell because Powell had failed to use his charm and all his skill to uh, di diplomatically to, this is with the Turks now actually, to um, open up that northern route. And uh, you know, so here the, the, here's the, the Cheney people complaining that Powell is too charming, too public, um, and, uh, but they wanted to use those skills on behalf of um, their, their own causes. Um, was, there, um, was there another part of the question? I can't, yeah. I, I wanted to know how the, it played in the rift, uh, particularly as, as you're describing. Um, you know, once again, without that route, uh, I mean, I've heard military analyses, this doesn't figure in the book, that in those very first weeks, it caused more American troops to have to, from the south, to run past Baghdad to cover the northern areas, and that that was a factor in the deterioration, that they didn't have enough troops um, in Baghdad. Now, you have to say, along with that, that they had no preparations and no sense of the, of the chaos and the looting that they were going to run to. Um, hi, Jim. Hi. Alan Carpian. Yeah. Uh, right. um, and uh, uh, I uh, noticed the, I haven't read the book, but I did notice the article in the Times, and I read some things about it. You do an awful lot about personalities, as though all this was a question of personalities here and there. But 9-11 seemed to me to represent a broader issue on a clash of civilizations. To what extent did you even think about that idea that people like um, you know, uh, Bernard Lewis or Samuel Huntington, that we're dealing here with a clash of civilizations, or did you just think, that, well, this is really just a bunch of personalities can't get along with each other or, or what have you? No, I, I don't think of it as just a bunch of personalities. I also don't think of it as, as a, a clash of, of civilizations. Um, you had different responses to what should happen after September 11th uh, and what it meant. And immediately, Powell's response is, we need to work through our allies. Very first, very, very first meetings, He's, that's his emphasis. Um, Condoleezza Rice, who I haven't mentioned and doesn't figure as much in this book, is a student of, of Soviet, US Soviet history, 
and immediately falls into the mindset that this is like the end of World War II and that we need, and, and it was at the end of World War II that the U.S. had a whole bunch of institutional responses. We set up the CIA, for example, uh, and, and the whole National Security Council process. And that we need to start doing that again. So she begins to focus on institutional arrangements. Um, and I guess out of that, we got the Department of Homeland Security. Um, but the, the, the neoconservatives think of it as more, more as a, a clash of civilizations and uh, they, particularly the leading neoconservative in the administration, who would be uh, Paul Wolfowitz, begin linking this to Iraq. Why would you reject the clash of civilizations? Well, I, you can explain September 11th in other and simpler ways than to say they were simply the representatives of a different civilization, I think. I mean, that's... that Well, where, where I would disagree is uh, a unified Islamic world. I mean, I think there are different, there are different cultures within the Islamic world. There, there was an element, the, the question would be, what, what would be the Powell State Department response to, the, to their diagnosis of what they believe has caused September 11th versus the response which led to the conclusion that one needs to invade Iraq? as a response to September 11th. So how does that, it's the response to 9-11 and the underlying conditions that's important. And here I think there is a pretty big debate between the state or Colin Powell position and the proponents of invasion. Yeah, I think the Powell vision was terror, terrorism is, is, not, is not a unified movement. Um, uh, that it's a bunch of different entities uh, which have to be dealt with individually rather than a, you know, one mass force. In the absence of, um, let's play this out in a way in which there's no personality conflict then. Would the ideological differences still have produced the same outcome or did the, or did the personality conflict produce a worse outcome? Uh, the latter, I think, yeah, there would still have been this debate for sure and this conflict, uh, I mean, uh, and this larger conflict, but the personalities um, and, and the tribes that formed made things much, much worse. Yes, but. Svetlana Savranska, National Security Archive. Um, if you compare the Gulf War, mm -hmm. fall of 1991, and then the invasion of Iraq, what struck me, and I haven't read your book, I don't know if you're touching on it at all, 
in the fall of 1990, the Bush administration, and both of these guys are inside the administration, were trying to very actively involve the Soviet Union. In fact, there was a sense that, you know, they can't do it unless Gorbachev right. gets on board and supports them. And then, of course, in 2003, uh, Putin, with whom Bush had a very good relationship at the time, opposed it very, very strongly, and as far as I know, even shared some intelligence saying, really, they don't have weapons of mass destruction. They are not connected to Al-Qaeda. And yet, in the invasion of Iraq, that was not a factor, right? That, you know, the Russian opposition, they right. didn't want to even consider that. One factor is obvious, the Soviet Union was the second superpower, Russia was not. But was there any difference in terms of, okay, we gotta work together with Russia or the Soviet Union between these two people that you're looking at? Um, really, when it came to Russia, when it, when it came to, in, in 90, 91, the Soviet Union was a dominant factor in their thinking, as you just, as you know and have said. Uh, I mean, I was actually, as a reporter, I was there for the meeting uh, right after the invasion of Kuwait, where Baker goes to meet with Shevardnadze and, and gets Soviet assent to what's about to, what, what happens over the next eight months. Um, Russia, you know, Russia figured in in those years with that administration as not an, uh, not an Iraq uh, issue, but, you know, the, when they first took office long before 9-11, they wanted to get out of the ABM treaty. That was probably priority number one. And they thought of it in those terms and, and thought of it as a matter of Europe policy, but really I couldn't find that they really were thinking a lot um, about Russia um, or saw Putin as a central factor um, until, of course, it becomes, they, they get to the UN much further along and they're facing opposition from the British, the French, and the Russians. And then, you know, it, it's something they don't like. But again, it's not, it's not really part of their car calculations. Jim, James Wilson from the State Department. Um, you make a compelling case uh, that there are long-standing differences between Cheney Wait, and I'm Powell. Yeah. Can you hear me? Can I just? Now I can, yeah. All right. Long-standing differences on the role of alliance management, the importance of mm -hmm. alliances. I'm wondering whether you think that um, there were differences in terms of uh, executive, their views on executive authority, the authority of the executive branch when it comes to um, U.S. foreign policymaking. And I'm thinking about late 1987, where, you know, in the wake of Iran-Contra on the Tower Board, there's a real debate over the future of um, notification of covert actions from the presidency to Congress. Um, and I'm kind of wondering whether, you know, Cheney, as we all remember, talk of a unitary executive. I'm kind of wondering whether you think Powell, um, I mean, for 
alliance between optics reasons wanted to go to the UN, et cetera. But at the end of the day, do you think that he had a fundamentally different view of um, the role of the executive branch in the making of foreign policy, uh, different fundamentally from Cheney? You know, I think that just wasn't one of Powell's issues other than, I mean, he wanted to go to the UN um, because he thought, I mean, he, that was the right thing to do. He wanted, he, he was the guy in charge of, and this was a, a sub-theme um, on many different issues for Powell. He's the guy who has, he's, his job is, he has to deal with the allies. Uh, and so, uh, to take a separate issue for a second, torture or interrogation or detention or Guantanamo to, to others in the White House or the Cheney office, those are um, issues of, you know, where do we house prisoners and how, how can we, you know, come up with a legal justification. For pallets, I have to answer to the British for the fact that we've got British citizens in Guantanamo and so on. And so, you know, alliance management is, you know, he thinks of that with everything. For executive authority, I, I just, it, it doesn't, Seth, do you have, can you think of things where that's a dominant issue for, for Powell, for the power of, uh, power of the press? I mean, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, for Cheney, having been in that Ford White House and Congress and Iran-Contra, um, executive authority is a dominant issue. Uh, and Cheney actually didn't want to, he didn't want to ask Congress for approval before the, the Gulf War either. Yeah. I'm not sure about, uh, one thing you haven't mentioned are the neocons. And I was wondering if the neocons, I don't think they had much influence on Powell, but did they have much influence on Cheney? Well, yes. I mean, I said Cheney wasn't himself a neocon, but, uh, and uh, again, the reason for that was, I mean, there are other beliefs among the neocons, like the importance of spreading democracy, that, that really were uh, much lesser issues for Cheney himself. But um, he had, as uh, his, part of his really team and network, and often his staff, um, lead, leading neoconservatives, including um, Paul Wolfowitz uh, and Scooter Libby. Um, but, but again, there are many others as well. And so, yes, um, that was, the, the, there were no neoconservatives at the highest level of the administration, but, but they were there and they were, they, you know, they were aligned with Cheney. Tom, yeah. I'm sorry, go, please go ahead. Thank you very much. Uh, so the book, the book mentions the, uh, that uh, the two men uh, disagreed on the priorities, like in terms of the Palestinian-Israeli struggle and the invasion of Iraq. In kind of a hindsight, how were their stances after appeared that there were no MD, no, no WMD, or there was no relation to Al-Qaeda. How, how did the two men present their views, their competing views afterwards? Um, well, Powell ended up, we haven't really talked about the UN's, Powell, who gave the 
main speech yeah. to the UN on weapons of mass destruction, ended up deeply bitter at the CIA for giving him bad information. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a kind of irony in that um, because the way it played out at the time, um, Bush is looking for a rationale. Uh, you know, we have to explain, we have to tell the world why we're going to war. Um, and, and Cheney even early on says, we need Casus Belli. And they asked the CIA and the CIA makes, comes up, the deputy director, John McLaughlin, comes to the White House and lays out the case for Bush. This is in late 2002. And he says, this stinks. <laughs> um, we, need, we need a better rationale. And the first thing that happens is he uh, asks Scooter Libby on Cheney's staff to draft the case. Libby was a lawyer uh, uh, and with Steve Hadley um, helping. Um, and they start to put together a memo. And then on a separate track, they need to find someone to make that case, and Bush decides it will be Powell. So Powell's given the job, and they give him Scooter Libby's memo. Libby is Cheney's closest aide, and Powell says, I'm not given that. Um, I'm gonna develop my own presentation. Um, and he goes out to the CIA, and for a week, he has about a week before he gives a speech, they scrub through the CIA, they basically take the CIA's national intelligence estimate and some other documents, but all from the CIA. I'm throwing out, you know, Scooter Libby says um, terrorism and Prague and all kinds of other things. So he takes this, basically the CIA's materials and he doesn't really think that the CIA could be as wrong as it was. Um, so the focus beforehand, before the speech, is on uh, getting rid of the Cheney material and taking the CIA. Then when there's no, as, as it turns out over the next couple years, um, as there's no, when it turns out there's no WMD, Powell ends up very bitter at the CIA um, for having misled him. Does that answer? And Cheney, you know, he goes, there's a point when the uh, Cheney side of the division keeps thinking, you know, the WMD will show up, they will show up, um, they must be there, uh, they must be hidden. Um, and so it kind of wafts out with uh, finding no WMD. Is that? Is yeah. it like uh, Colin Powell like showed some remorse or, and, and Dick Cheney did not? I don't really think that Cheney has shown remorse in Powell. I mean, along with his anger at the CIA, yes, yes, yeah. uh, he's, he has shown remorse and said so, yes. Thank you very much. So let's take, let's take one, one more from, from uh, Tom here. Thanks, Emma, thanks, Seth. Tom Blanton from National Security Archive. I've just been reading all these Rumsfeld snowflakes in which <laughs> He seems as mad at Colin Powell on an ongoing basis and at Condoleezza Rice. There's hardly any mention of the vice president in there, but the implication reading between there is that in fact Rumsfeld's playing this role as effectively a guided missile, whacking the Powell plans, whacking the, the lack of process at NSC. Could you just comment on the Rumsfeld role in this yeah, Rumsfeld, great rift? Rumsfeld is, is a, a heavy. I mean, I, 
for, for sure, and a major player on this. He's, uh, I, I don't, on the one hand, I don't think that Rumsfeld's doing this at Cheney's behest. He didn't need anybody's behest. I mean, he's, this is his own view, which happens to coincide um, with Cheney. Um, but he's a, you know, he's a major actor on his own. Um, one thing that I say in the book is that he kind of, he reinforces Cheney's instincts and they reinforce his. And on the other side, um, Richard Armitage uh, backs up Powell and Powell backs him up so that you have, um, actually there are three teams of, I call them the BFFs, best friends uh, in, uh, in the administration. Rumsfeld and Cheney, Powell and Armitage, and then, and this is an important level, the dep at the deputies level, there are deputies meetings making all, all these decisions, Paul Wolfowitz and Sc Scooter Libby are kind of a tag team as well. Um, and what it makes is it reinforces um, the divisions because actually in, in the first Bush administration when Rumsfeld wasn't around, um, people didn't find it e that hard to deal with Cheney. Um, in the first Bush administration when Armitage wasn't around, um, Powell um, seemed to be, I mean, you just didn't get to these disputes, which is, has, says nothing about you know, any individual person, but it just was part of the dynamics of that administration. So here's my last question. Yeah. After having spent so much time in these two men's lives, do you have more empathy for either one or both of them, the challenges that they faced, their experiences? I know as a journalist, you're not supposed to say that, but as a biographer, do you have, how, how do you feel about these gentlemen after this? Um, I mean, on Cheney, I, you know, what came through, you know, more to me, more this time, um, is simply, it's not his, not his personality, it's that he was wrong. I mean, he just, you know, he could, you know, you can talk about lust for power or not lust for power or something, um, that on the key questions on Iraq, will we be greeted as liberators? Um, is the insurgency just a temporary thing? Uh, he was wrong over and over again. Um, and that it's not actually his personality, but his, his, his errors on uh, what was gonna happen. On Powell, I probably, you know, he's, he's incredibly admirable, likable guy who made, uh, however, mistakes that you, you know, there's no way of explaining them away. Um, and I guess that's what I was left with. Thank you, Jim. Congratulations on the great Ricks. <laughs> Let's give him a round of Thank applause. Thank you all. Thanks for coming. Thanks.